0: summer, I went backpacking on the Kahana Trail, and maybe you're wondering, why does this guy keep going out there? Well, it's a gorgeous wilderness area, and the whole trail itself, the Kahana Trail proper, is over 70 miles long, so I haven't been able to see all of it on any one outing. The portion I did it back in the summer was a bit over 20 miles and, in fact, I recorded part of this show while I was out there on that trail. But it was just a bit over 20 miles, and this past week, I went out to do about 30 more miles of it. You know, even if a person were to do all 70-plus miles in a single trip, there are still 100 cross-connector trails and off-trail things to see. It's just a huge huge wilderness area. I mean, it's really far out there and remote. So don't be surprised if you hear me talking about going out there again sometime in the future. Anyway, I had a great time. Temperatures at night were down to about freezing, and highs during the day were about 60 degrees Fahrenheit. So light jacket weather. I was expecting rain for most of the time, but it really only rained the first night I was out there. That was the first night. I didn't get started until about 10 p.m. at night. So I was hiking in the dark through the woods until about 1 a.m. And all that time, I had to deal with drizzle. But I managed to get a fire going that night, and the rest of the days were, were pretty pleasant. Because the World Series of baseball is going on right now, let me tell you about Jose Altuve. Jose Altuve is a second baseman for the Houston Astros. He's a short guy. He only measures about 5 foot 6 inches and only weighs about 168 pounds. For non-Americans, this converts to about 1.68 meters in height and 76.2 kilograms in weight. A few nights ago, in a deciding game against the Evil Empire, the New York Yankees, Jose Altuve, the smallest guy in all baseball, went up to bat. The score was tied 4-4 four to four in the bottom of the ninth with two outs. In other words, this was a situation that was do or die. Who was Altuve facing as a pitcher? Well, none other than Aroldis Chapman. He's a legendary pitcher whose pitches easily cross the plate at 100 miles an hour. With everything on the line, this happened.
1: Riznik on deck, and that 2-0 pitch was a beauty from Chapman.
0: Here's what the announcer said. And the little guy, 5'6", 168 pounds, with the heart of a lion, sends it over the wall and left for a pennant-winning home run. Amazing. Amazing. At the end, when they're interviewing Jose Altuve, they ask why he was motioning to his teammates not to rip his jersey off. And he said, I I don't know. I'm too shy. The last time they did that, I got in trouble with my wife. And he laughed. Then Jose Altuve said this. And this is the part that gives me chills. He said, let me tell you this. We won the game not because I hit a homer. Julie hit a three-run homer. Michael Brantley made a real good play over there. Springer just walked and put some pressure on them to get some momentum going. We're working as a team. We don't really have one player, as I said before, and I am just really happy for everybody right now. Basically, he was saying his final home run was worthless without all of the contributions of his teammates. Chills, gives me chills. An announcer later said, don't forget, Jose Altuve suffered through a ton of losing, a ton of losing, and now he's the heart of the Houston Astros. Adrian Garro from Major League Baseball said, there's nobody else it could have been, really. It's perfect that Altuve was the one up at that precise moment in, Hitting that precise pitch for that precise home run. Just gives me chills.
1: It is anything but a walk-off home run because nobody's leaving. And the little guy, 5'6", 168, with a heart of a lion, sends it over the wall and left for a... Got back to a tie game with an amazing two-run homer in the ninth inning. Altuve with a 2-1 count on him. How many big hits? How many big home runs here at home for Jose Altuve in his time with the Astros? He is a hero tonight, and the Astros win this ALCS in six games the final tonight is 6-4. You just told me you were ready for that 2-1 pitch. Take me through the at-bat against Chapman. Well, I, first of all, I want to thank God and all the fans for a beautiful game, for a beautiful uh, playoff. You know, we really deserve to be in the World Series because my team has been working really hard to get to this point. And in the at-bat, I want to just get a good pitch to hit. I mean, Chapman is, for me, one of the best closer I ever faced and he throws a 100, so I wanted to be on time for the fastball, but looking for something I can handle, and it just happened. Going around the bases, what was going through your mind? Well, running up, uh, around the bases, the only thing I was thinking was just thanking God and uh, just thinking that we're going to the World Series once again. You asked the teammates not to tear your shirt. Why? Was that? You asked your teammates not to tear your shirt. Why was that? <laughs> too shy. Last time they did that, I got in trouble with my wife. (laughs) (laughs) Jose, your team defensively played an amazing game. Reddick, Brantley, you're 4-6-3 with Carlos. How much do you guys pride yourself on being able to win games like that? Well, let me tell you this. We we won the game not because I hit a homer. You only hit a three-run homer. Michael and Brantley made a really good play over there. Springer just walked and put some pressure on them to to get... uh, you know, some momentum going. We are working as a team. No, we don't relate to one player like I said before. And I'm really happy for everybody right now. Jose, congratulations. Thank you. American League champions. Joe, back to you. Now, here's
0: what I want to say to all of you. I often get a lot of praise from people who appreciate the work I'm doing here. And, you know, it makes me feel real good. It makes me feel very, very good. At the same time, I'd like you to recognize that none of your genuine progress happens because of what I do. I'm such a small part in this. If my part makes up 5%, your part, the really important part, makes up a solid 95%. It doesn't matter how good information is if you don't first recognize it as something you want to give merit to. And then if you don't apply it in your life, and then if you don't struggle through the ups and downs, and then if you don't generate genuine desire within yourself, none of my work matters in your life unless you yourself are taking it and doing something with it. So thank you for all your very kind words that keep me encouraged and motivated to keep doing what I'm doing. And also, never forget where the real praise and admiration belongs, go to the mirror. Start loving and appreciating that person and all the work and effort and incredibly good qualities he or she is demonstrating in all this on a regular, ongoing basis. Let's go back to what the announcer said about Jose Altuve. The announcer said, Don't forget Jose Altuve suffered through a ton of losing, a ton of losing, and now he's the heart of the Houston Astros. So when I get praise about the work I'm doing, I put it into context that uh, I'm here because of all the suffering that I had to endure to provide me with insights, to put me in a genuine place where I was willing to hear things that I didn't want to hear, and uh, here I am now talking to you all about how to get through what you're dealing with. The point of this is that <clears throat> suffering is not pleasant. It's not fun. But do you see how anybody who is in the situation that I was once in, who is now suffering, going through these hard times, doing this hard work to try to get out of it a more insightful person, do you see how the suffering is something to be valued? It's counterintuitive, I know. The suffering is something to be valued. It's not something to be valued in the sense that you want to embrace it and have it in your life forever. But if you bear in mind that the suffering is serving a legitimate purpose that is going to make your life in the long run much better if you view it the right way and you take advantage of it the right way, it's a very, very good thing happening in your life. It doesn't matter if you're 30, 50, 70. The suffering is unpleasant as it is is helping get you where you need to be. Don't forget, Jose Altuve suffered through a ton of losing, a ton of losing, and now he's the heart of the Houston Astros. If I'm somebody right now who is valued by the people who listen to me, it's only because I suffered. I suffered a ton of losing. And now um, that suffering has given me insights that allow me to help other people. Can you see how there's nothing special about me, how you too, once you come out of this, are going to be the same valuable source for other people, the same type of valuable source of insight and information for other people. So uh, that's how I wanted to kick off this episode, with Jose Altuve as an example, and uh, gives me an excuse to talk about baseball a little bit, something that I'm... Passionate about. Alrighty. How do you explain to a woman with emotional disorder that you're upset about something that she did without triggering her, quote unquote, and ending up being blamed for everything and wishing you'd never spoke? Have you ever seen the film Lawrence of Arabia from 1962? In my opinion, Lawrence of Arabia is one of the greatest films ever made. There's a famous scene in that movie, which is pretty much the answer to this entire question. Lawrence has just put out a match with his bare fingers in front of the other guys. They're impressed. As Lawrence grabs his hat and holster and starts to leave, one of the other fellows there strikes a match and gives it a go himself. Ooh, he says, it damn well hurts, and he flutters his hand about in pain. Certainly it hurts, said Lawrence. Well, what's the trick, then, the soldier says. That's when Lawrence utters his famous line, The trick, William Potter, is not minding that it hurts. So everybody must realize that the question I just gave, how do you explain to a woman with emotional disorder that you're upset about something she did without quote-unquote triggering her and ending up being blamed for everything and wishing you never spoke? That question is an attempt to learn how to control another human being. I understand that seems like an outrageously dramatic statement, but it is not. If you have explained yourself to her honestly, with no intent to offend, your part is done. How she reacts to it is her business, not your business. This involves the law of individual inherent rights, responsibility, and authority. Long-term listeners know this is a name I come up with. It involves where those individual inherent rights, responsibility, and authority begin and end for each individual and having an unambiguous understanding of that boundary. I'm a visual person, so I like to imagine a literal boundary around me. And I like to look at other people and imagine they've got boundaries around them, that we're all walking around in these little bubbles. Borderline personality disorder or not, the woman in question has the inherent right to react to anything in any manner that she will, whether you like it or not. But guess what? You also have that same inherent right. You have the right to not like how she reacts. You have the right to remove her influence from your life. You have the right to cease communication with her. You have the right to overlook how she reacts. You have the right to bear it. Whatever fits within your individual inherent rights, responsibility, and authority, which is anything involving your behavior and decisions, That's what you've got to work with. What you do not have a right to do is attempt to manipulate her feelings or behavior, even when you feel like your manipulation will result in a more desirable behavior from her according to your desires. Because once you've done that, you've left your circle in the sand and you've stepped over into hers. You see, you're trying to influence or control her. And that's a violation. When I talk about a violation in this context, what I'm saying is that you are working disharmoniously against the natural order of life, the natural balance of life. You know, we often talk about how emotional unhealth... You break it down to its simplest terms, is simply having a misperception or a misconception about the nature of life. Well, this is a perfect example of that. A person who doesn't see that the other person has a right to react any way she chooses, the same as you do, and that your only right is in choosing how you will react to her reaction. When you don't see this, you're working disharmoniously with life. You're working against the natural harmony of the way life is, the very nature of the way life is. So your only part to play in this is how you will react to her reaction. In other words, you sit back, you see what she gives you. Now you've got choices to make. You don't have choices to make. In regards to how she is going to react, you don't. So the secret to your happiness is being content with what you do. Not worrying about or trying to manipulate what she might do or how she might do it. In other words, the trick William Potter is not minded if she gets pissed and blames you for everything. As long as you're respecting the line in the sand where your inherent rights, responsibility, and authority end, being content to focus your attention there, this shouldn't be too hard. Once you learn the principles and laws that I often talk about here and can visualize them clearly, it's very liberating. It's liberating to let go of what was never yours to have a grip on in the first place infinitely more constructive than the alternatives. All right, well, this brings us to the meat and taters of today's conversation. Recently, I had some correspondence with a person who is who is dealing with an emotional disorder, and he finds himself at a crossroads of losing his family because they've set concrete boundaries and requirements for him to meet in order to come back into their lives I'm sharing this correspondence with you all today because it is not a unique set of circumstances that this person finds himself in. And my communication here with him might be very enlightening to many, many other people who are currently in similar situations or who foresee being in a similar situation in the future. This could also be very enlightening to family members who are beginning to gain an awareness of the unhealthy aspects of their own situations and are now starting to set dramatic boundaries in order to improve their own emotional health as well as improve the emotional health of the person that they love. In other words, genuine recovery is an individual accomplishment And when I say that, I mean that your family can't do it for you. So sometimes your family has to say, we're not going to tolerate this sort of thing anymore. And then they may communicate some requirements that you can meet in order to come back into their lives. If you don't meet those requirements, maybe you'll lose your family. Maybe the marriage will be over. Maybe you'll find yourself a single man or a single woman once again and sometimes this can happen you know it happened for me in my 30 in my late 30s but it can happen to people in their 50s and 60s and 70s so there's really no hard fast age for when this sort of thing happens but the pattern is recurring it it, it is a pattern i see over and over again so let me share the correspondence I've had with this person. Of course, I'm not going to reveal who the person is. And uh, I hope the person, if they hear this, they will, um, even, if it, even if they kind of cringe at the idea of their the particulars of their story being told on this podcast, I hope they understand that most of the people listening to this are experiencing the same situations themselves. They might as well think I'm talking about them. So, your privacy is of utmost importance to me. I'm not going to give anything like that away. The letter or the email uh, that I shared with this person recently goes like this. Hello, so-and-so. I've had you on my mind a lot this week. I really enjoyed our conversation And I realize you're in a sort of definitive window in your life. A sort of crossroads. That may sound gloomy, but I don't mean for it to sound gloomy. Often, at a crossroads, both branches offer great things. But I understand that even when this is the case we may have our strong preference for one branch over the other branch based on our current outlook of things. When I was thinking of writing this, I had to remind myself that my primary objective is not to help you save your marriage. I have to remind myself of it because it's tempting for it to be the overriding focus. Honestly, not long ago, I myself was living through this brief, definitive window of life, and I was equal parts in a panic and equal parts trying to do anything to distract myself from the pain. Of course, the doing anything to distract myself from the pain and worry of the possibility of a divorce, well, it precipitated the divorce. It's just a difficult situation to be in. I don't want you to suffer a divorce, so I don't want you to spend all of your time doing things to distract yourself from the pain and worry which will only ensure that a divorce happens. On the flip side, you're only a man, and it's not reasonable to think that a man can take the full brunt of the intensity of this pain and worry without often taking a break from it. And to take a break from it, this requires distraction of some sort. So my advice is to be kind to yourself and modest. Modesty is recognizing our real limits as human beings and then being content to work within those limits. It's really an example of being very reasonable With oneself. When the reality of the situation is just too heavy and too painful, instead of ignoring this and obsessing about it, take a little break. Find some distraction. But, and this is a big but, please make sure it's a healthy distraction. Going to movies were always a big relief for me because it offered a few hours of escape. And there's something about seeing a movie at a theater that provided this escape for me in a much more effective way than simply watching a movie on TV. The movie suggestion is just to illustrate the nature of the types of distractions I personally classify as healthy and reasonable. I don't necessarily think it's healthy, For example, to travel far from home for adventures while your family may be falling apart. And at the same time, you're trying to convince your family that they are one of your greatest priorities. You know what I mean? The behavior doesn't support the message. And I'm sure that an epic vacation in Europe would definitely do the trick of serving as a great distraction, but it would do so at a great cost. Healthy distractions are meant to take the pressure off for a day or so, or at times maybe only a few hours, with the purpose of refreshing us so that we can get right back to the inner work and harsh honesty of examining ourselves and our situation and working out the details of what has caused it and how to make it right with renewed positivity and energy. As for the message to your wife that you shared with me, I liked it a lot. I thought it reflected a lot of good things. Also, there was a part that really stood out to me that I wanted to point out to you. It was the part where you said, You, your health, our relationship, and our kids are what matter most to me at this time. I will do anything for you. Anything. Do you see any problems with this? I do realize that it seems selfless and great, and you'd wonder how anybody could find fault with such a romantically expressed notion. But I got to tell you, this is just wrong. This is the wrong situation and circumstances for you to be talking like this. Now, imagine that you are your wife and your kids, You're in their shoes, and you're walking around pulling your hair out because you care so much for this so-and-so guy, and you desperately, I mean desperately, want him to do more than just talk. And you desperately, desperately want him to see for himself, for real, the magnitude of what a negative force in your life he has been. And you desperately want him to do the work that only he can do to identify and fix these things. You realize you have no power to do this for him, that he must self initiate and do this himself, for himself, from a genuine desire to be healthy for himself. And that until he has an epiphany, he will not tap into any authentic motivation to do these things. And until he starts taking these things profoundly seriously, he will not have any epiphanies. And until any of this happens, he's walking around with a sort of superficial head knowledge and talking shit sweetly. And every time he opens his mouth and talks shit sweetly, it's like pouring salt on your wounds. Because while so-and-so may think it shows how smart he is and how enlightened, the thing it really screams is how far away he is from genuine insight. Now this same person says to you, you, your health... Our relationship and our kids are what matter most to me. (laughs) Not me, not my health, not my genuine recovery, but you, your health, our relationship, and our kids are what matter most to me. What they don't want or need for them to be what matter most to you. Do you understand that from their point of view, and they're right, the entire reason they find themselves in the predicament that they do is that your focus has been misdirected on them, and it has not been on yourself in any genuine way. If it truly were, if you yourself and the causes of your behaviors and thinking patterns were your primary overwhelming concern, you would never say things like, you, your health, our relationship, our kids are what matter most to me. It's utterly tone deaf. It's maddening for people who are in the situation that your family is in. How do I know this? I know this for a fact because I have experienced this twice from two different perspectives or positions. First, I was the tone-deaf guy, and my ex-wife was the one desperately hoping I would tap into some genuine insight and have a breakthrough and finally begin approaching this thing with some true insight or epiphanies. See, I didn't have these epiphanies or gain these insights in time, and all of you know now that I lost my wife because of it. Secondly, I'm now the enlightened one, desperately wishing from my father what my ex-wife once wished from me. So, I have both seen the incredible frustration as the person causing that frustration... And I have experienced it myself. I'm the person currently experiencing it myself. So it's not impossible or even really so difficult. You can do this. And you have time to do it for the right reasons for yourself, not because your wife and kids want it, but because you stop life, stop life, and you stop everything. To focus long enough on this one thing to the point that you manage to tap into some powerful genuineness and sincerity in your approach to this thing. And have some breakthrough insight to see how this is what you want for yourself more than anything for yourself. And as a nice cherry on top, it could result and you saving your marriage and your family. That is to say, saving your marriage and your family is honestly and truly not your primary motivation. It's simply a great side benefit that might come as a result. Think of a worker at Chernobyl. He gets radiated. Now he's poisoned everybody around him. Now imagine that this worker from Chernobyl can rid himself of the radiation, but to do so, he has to go away for a few months and undergo an intense medical treatment. What does he do instead? He goes home to his family, and now there, all being exposed to this radiation, and they're trying to run from him, and they're telling him, no, you're a danger to us. You've got to go get yourself fixed. We love you, but you have to go get yourself fixed first. Only then can we have you back home. But this guy won't hear it. Don't worry, he says. I'd never leave you alone. I love you so much. I just can't leave you alone. And he keeps chasing them around. Do you see the problem? The problem is, his being there is their greatest problem. He is their greatest danger. But he keeps chasing them around, and all the while, not only is he dying, but his supposed quote-unquote love is exposing them to the same unhealthy radiation. Do you see the distorted thinking that allows a man to believe that his quote-unquote love for his family means focusing ever more on them? He's the problem. He has to fix himself. But instead, he's focusing ever more on his family, tightening that grip. When all they want, what would make them truly happy, is for him to fix himself and then come back to them healthy. You remember what the quote was in this article? That the person who wrote the the letter said, you, your health Our relationship, our kids, are what matter most to me. I will do anything for you, anything. I will do anything for you, anything. And they've told him exactly what he has to do, and it goes right over his head. Get better. Fix yourself. Okay, okay, I'll do anything for you, anything. I care the most about you guys. And he just... Chases them around. What is it they want? What what would make them happier than anything else? For him to fix himself. This person says, I'll do anything for you, anything. But does he mean it? He's not even hearing it. He's not even hearing what it is. They most are asking for more than anything else. He ignores it. He listens to his emotions and what he wants and totally disregards what it is he could do that would genuinely please them. So the guy at Chernobyl, he won't hear it. Don't worry, family. Don't worry. I won't leave you alone because I love you so much. It just wouldn't be right for me to go off for a few months and leave you alone. And he just chases these people around all the while. Not only is he dying, but he's exposing them to the same radiation. So it's very distorted thinking. This man just doesn't get it. He doesn't see that as long as he is doing everything except the one thing his family needs for him to do, that this is not love. It's simply a man choosing to do whatever it is his feelings tell him to do because his feelings tell him to do it and to help with what everybody else needs. You have to stop hearing what your family is telling you and really start listening. You have to be a Sherlock Holmes and you have to scrutinize the subtleties of the things your family is telling you, not just the surface message. And then you have to stop life and really spend time thinking about it. First of all, what are they really asking for and why has this been going right over your head? Why have you been ignoring it? And just going through the motions, genuine selfless love would not do this. The nature of this work is not do this, now do this, now do this, now do this. What is the nature of this work? It's sincerity, genuineness, insightful understanding of all That is at play. In other words, the importance of this work is not in what you are doing or not doing. Rather, the importance is entirely in why you are doing it. If you're doing everything in the world that you're supposed to do, quote, unquote, but you're not doing it from a place of healthy motivation, Your family will see this. And this is why your family is so frustrated. They're not pulling their hair out necessarily because of what you're doing or saying, it's why you're doing and saying it. It's that your words and actions are loudly revealing a lack of the type of genuineness and sincerity and approach that they know is necessary for any of the things you are doing to matter. If you can fix this about yourself, you're going to see some major immediate benefits. And I'll tell you now, you've got your intellect, your good looks, your success working against you. You know lots of stuff. And as you told me, you've spent years reading about these things. And you have a great superficial knowledge of these things. And this is not your friend. Your success is not your friend. Your looks are not your friend. Because when a man, when life is treating a man pretty good, when life is Continuing to treat you pretty good, a man says, well, things aren't so bad. I can keep doing things the way I'm used to doing them. Especially the intellect part, you know, especially the intellect and a person who has read a lot about psychology. This is not your friend. This quote unquote knowledge is lying to you and making you believe you know what you do not know. There are different types of knowing a thing, as you surely already understand. The type of knowledge you currently have for this situation is not going to get you anywhere. I honestly think that this is the aspect of recovery that you need to focus on more than anything. So, uh... You know, there's no right or wrong. It's just what you want or what you don't want, what you're willing to do or what you're not willing to do. Ladies and gentlemen, we've reached the end of today's program. I'm Brian Barnett, the creator and host of this show, The Last Symptom. I want to remind you one more time to go over to thelastsymptom.com. Please support my work with a donation if you can. And I want to thank anybody, anybody truly from the bottom of my heart, who has supported my work. You know, most of the support that I get is modest, is modest in nature. But I will tell you this, with complete honesty, not a dollar comes through that I don't say, that person is serious. A lot of the support that I get is very modest. How do I say this? If it were me giving $10, For something that I thought was worth hundreds of dollars, I might be tempted to feel bad about myself for that. But only you know what's within your means. And I can tell you honestly that not a dollar comes through where I don't look at uh, that individual with a chest bursting uh, from appreciation for that person. Not a dollar. So don't ever think that uh, your dollar doesn't matter. It does matter. It allows me to continue doing this. I understand more than most people how difficult things can be financially sometimes. And I never take for granted not a single cent that anybody sends me to support this work. You know, five years at least I went um, without being able to rub two cents together. I took advantage of every free thing I could on the Internet. Even my Internet service (laughs) in New England was something I was siphoning off of one of my neighbors. So I wasn't even paying for Internet. I couldn't pay for Internet. But, um, (laughs) you know, it's tempting to allow those sorts of situations to make us feel good or bad about ourselves. Uh, Don't let it in this situation. If you cannot contribute to the last symptom, I understand I want you to take advantage of the information that I put out there as much as anybody.